episode 7 of the Hugenhoff Podcast. If you want to visit our website, feel free to do so at www.hugenhoff.org. That's H-U-G-I-N-H-O-F dot O-R-G. And if you had any questions or comments for the show, please email them to Podcast at gmail.com. Today, I am joined by Lore and Lauren. Hello. So, today, we're just going to kind of jump right into us. Um, there are some show notes, as usual, but you probably actually want to look at them this time, because there's going to be a link to the CODIS Regius. And what we're talking about today is the Poetic Eddas. So why the Codis Regius is important, when you go to the link, there will be a translation of the Valsipa. The Valsipa is found in the Poetic Eddas. Um, the Hollander translation is my personal favorite, but there's many out there. And the Valsipa is actually made up of two original manuscripts. One called the Hawksbach, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and the other called the Codis Regius. And today we will be looking at the Codis Regius um, in a little bit of detail, and of course the Valsipa from the Poetic Edits in a little bit of detail. And there are discrepancies between the two, and the one I will point out is actually rather important, which is why we kind of need to know what the Poetic Edda is made of, and we will, we will get to that eventually. So basically the structure of the show today is we are just going to discuss the Valsipa, and as it's necessary, we will talk about this topic or that topic and, and actually bring up the stanzas, but for the most part, we're just kind of going over the basics. All right. First off, what is the Valsipa? It is the saints of the Vala, or the prophetess. So, basically, Odin conjured uh, a, a Vala, somebody who knew the future and the past and everything else. And he asked her about the past, and he also asked her about the future. So, anyway, um, this is what she says. So, kind of wrapped up in this is the beginning of the world and also the end of the world. All right, so let's just start from the beginning, and all this is in the Valsipa, but I'm going to kind of break it down into common sense terms or whatever. So in the very beginning, there's something that's called Ginnagap, and that's just a void. And it's between two other worlds, which is Muspelheim and Niflheim. Muspelheim is the world of fire, and Niflheim is the world of ice, so between them is, is a void. And all life is going to eventually start there, and you've got Abdullah and Ginnagap, which um, she's a cow, and she feeds off the icy rind from Niflheim. And, and then before I get into everything else, that original myth, let's go ahead and look at it in a little bit more detail. So, so you've got Muspelheim, which is fire, and Niflheim, which is ice, 
what do you guys think the significance of a world of fire and a world of ice is? Chaos and stagnation. In between is where life is. You can't just have total, utter, uncontrollable chaos, fire, and then ice, which is nothing, just not doing anything, just standing still and not creating, just being, create life. Life needs to have both those elements to to exist, and that's what I'm seeing when, when they come together. Okay. Yeah, I actually completely agree, and that's what I get out of it, too, um, I'm sort of reminded of the Aristotelian doctrine of everything needs to be in the middle. I think it's the Aristotelian doctrine of the mean. So you can't have anything of one extreme and expect good or life in general to exist. You know, if courage is good because it's the right amount of everything, if you have too much just like rushing into situations, you'd be foolhardy. But if you're too timid and you never go anywhere, you'd have cowardice. And the middle is courage because you're careful enough but brave enough at the same time to have like uh, the right balance that you need to actually exist. So yeah, when, when you have Muspelheim and Niflheim or fire and ice or order and chaos... Somewhere in between them is going to be where life actually exists. So let's move on to the next part of that. Why Abdullah? Why is a cow in Genegap? Well, is it a cow or an aurochs? It's an aurochs, which looks like a cow but is not a cow. It's sort of like a wild cow. It's I guess we don't. we domesticated him, and yeah. I don't think they really exist anymore. I think. I have heard in captivity there are a few. This okay. is what I have heard. Now, I don't know whether or not that's true, um, but for the most part, they don't exist anymore because we bred them into timidity. Yeah. Into yes. the domestic, yes, domestic cow, I suppose you would call it. But it is it is a uh, it was a food source to our people, and it, it was basically a life giver. It was the reason we could continue to exist because we had these, and that's why I think that this is a significant symbol uh, in in the in the tale here. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's a life source, and I mean, really, if you think about what a cow meant to like the people of this time, and we're kind of viewing the world through their eyes as so. You'd have your food source, as in the actual meat. You'd have your milk, which is a more sustained over time food source. You'd have cheese. And then also you'd have, like, probably even the skins to make clothing. So you've got food, shelter from the elements, the whole nine yards. And something to barter with. And a horn. Yeah. <laughs> and a horn, which you can drink out drink of. Drink out of. We can make a sounding horn out of it. You know, all sorts of different stuff. It was, it was just a very useful um, animal. Yes. And I like what Lauren said, too. You said that they could be used for barter. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was the beginning of being able to do stuff like trade. And ultimately, you have to have money so you can survive. And I think that makes more sense to us today. If you don't have money, you can't buy groceries or a house or whatever... But yeah, the cow all around, or this is an auroch, 
but you can also think of a cow just all around as something that lets you survive in the world. It's the beginning of life. So when you look at Abdullah, which is in uh, Ginnagap, it is a symbol of life. Life is being created here, and that only happens when these two opposite worlds come together. And it's almost like the beginning of civilization, too, because before, yeah, um, animals and everything can hunt, but Mm -hmm. there's so much more that we, as humans, did with the cow with the auroch we we domesticated it we made it ours mm-hmm. right and it's it's something that no other creature except ants right okay really do it's 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 a civilization kind of thing well and i think it's kind of interesting that we have the auroch rather than the cow mm-hmm. because both of them are similar in the sense that, you know, you can use them for food, everything we just talked about. They are a symbol of life. But the auroch has a tinge of wildness mm. or uncontrollability that perhaps the cow doesn't. I don't know if this is significant or not, but could it also be hinting at the fact life is something unpredictable? Or less easy to control than a cow because it's an auroch, the ancestor of a cow? You could think of that way, I'm sure, and that's fine. I'm just going to take it that that's what was there at the time. This is what our people were dealing with when the stories were being uh, passed down and eventually mm-hmm. written. Well, that's very possible. Yeah. I'm not Now, I do know that we have one rune, um, Urzus, mm-hmm. which... The literal word translation for it is auroch, and we have feo, which means cattle. So there is a distinction in the runes. Now, where do the where does Ginnagap fit in with the runes? Well, is another question. There is this thing: if you had a bunch of auroch and mm-hmm. they were in possession of somebody, someone owned them, those would still be cattle. This is singular. This is by itself and void. Of course, it's just going to be something. It's not when something's by itself. It's not cattle. When there's no oh, thing to have ownership saying. of, it would not be cattle. Well, normally the single singular of cattle would be cow. Now we need to do a rune study. It <laughs> it would actually be interesting to see the etymology. Um, is the cow and the auroch actually legitimately different? In the in the runes, I always figured there were. It was because you had auroch and cattle, but I didn't think about the whole singular versus plural idea of it. Is a group of auroch that someone owns cattle? It may be. Yeah, I would, would think they sense. would be. I mean, I mean, even a group of uh, auroch without anyone saying ownership of <clears> them <throat> would not be cattle. Cattle is a very human term to put on something that they own. Right. Yeah. I agree. But Abdullah seems like it's not something that people... No. Oh. No, it's it's a wild animal. So, yeah, I just wonder how significant it is it's a wild animal rather than a domestic animal that's here at the center mm-hmm. of creation. And, of course, people don't exist yet, so it couldn't be something owned by people. Right. So, uh, to sum up just real quick all of that, 
Skin a gap is the void that lies between Muspelheim or Niflheim, or the two worlds of fire and ice. Abdullah was just kind of there hanging out. Um, she just sort of came into... I, she was already there. I kind of think she was already there. And then Ymir was the first giant, and he just kind of came out of somewhere and went over there and started feeding off of Abdullah. Mm. And then at the same time that Ymir came out, so he must have already been there, you had Abdullah lick Burr from the ice. So she started licking, like I said, Abdullah was licking from the um, icy rind that came from, well, when Muspelheim and Nifelheim come together, it created this icy brine. And Abdullah licked Burr from the ice. So if she licked Burr from the ice, he was already in the ice. So would you say he's from an ice giant descent then? Well, it's actually tricky to say because Nifelheim is just all ice. Mm -hmm. And Muspelheim is just all fire. And it says that like the particles of ice came together and hit the sparks of fire. Mm -hmm. And those coming together created an icy brine. Mm. And that's what she licked Burr from. So Burr could very possibly have been a, synth a synthesis of Muspelheim and Nifelheim both. Can I get off Go ahead. just yeah. in a tangent for a second here? And, okay, do then, at this point, before the two worlds mix... Were there fire giants and ice giants before this happened? Would it be possible to say that when this happened, the sparks and the ice of both kind of mixed in with those worlds as well and then gave that the ability to become a fire giant and the ability to become an ice giant? Otherwise, that, it's just pure chaos and then pure order. That's actually a good question. And later in the... Very much... Um, not very much later, but later in the in the lore, it tells us that Ymir created the ice giants. Mm. Um, he sweated them from under his armpits, and one foot begat uh, sons and daughters with the other foot. And it says he created the frost giants. But not the fire giants. It doesn't mention the fire giants. And there's always a question, how many giants are there? Mm -hmm. Are there frost giants and fire giants? Or are there frost giants, ice giants, and fire giants? Or are there fire giants at all? I mean, there's a lot of questions on, depending on how you want to take things, how many giants there are. Because you could say there aren't fire giants, because in the whole Ragnarok story, they're actually referred to, I think, as the sons of Surt. Right. So they might not be giants at all. Mm. But... But was mm. but Sir kind of seems like a giant, right. but he did come from Muspelheim, the mm. fire world, rather than Nifelheim, and the giants just seems like they would be... They're normally called frost giants, so they certainly wouldn't come from a world of fire. Right. They come from a world of ice. So that's actually a really good question. Hmm. And you kind of wonder also if Ymir creates um, the race of frost giants, which mm -hmm. it says he does. 
does that imply he came imply that he came from Nifelheim? Because it doesn't actually say one way or the other. It's just like now. Keep in mind, a lot of our lore is missing because when you read the poetic eddas, you can pretty easily tell, in my opinion, this is a retelling of a myth everybody already knew. Mm-hmm. And they're just putting it into a poetic form. That's why there's so many kinnings. Right. With, yes. And which actually makes it harder but easier sometimes. And it's, it's nice to have those kinnings in there. But when it's in a poetic form and you don't know what the kenning is for sometimes, or perhaps we're missing some of the kennings. Right. Have we mentioned what kennings were before in this podcast? I think we should go over it. Do you want to go over it? Um, I'm trying to form an appropriate sentence to describe what it is, but basically it's, it's, it's using lore that you already have to say something in a different fashion, like uh, yes. Heimdall's head is a sword. I, I don't know how to structure anything greater than that, because that's the only kidding that really ever comes to mind for me. <laughs> and there is actually one in the Eddas, something about Hlyn's... Well, I can, I, can, I can structure with Heimdall's head. Heimdall is called the Ram... Because of a wave, because he was the he had nine mothers. the 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 tenth wave is is a ram, so he's a ram, and a ram's head is its weapon with its horns. And Heimdall then has a weapon, and his weapon is a sword. So Heimdall's head is a sword. It's very long and roundabout, but you got to know all these things about the lore to understand what they're trying to say. And there, it is quite possible that we are missing some of the kinnies because we don't know all the lore. Right. Um, and since everyone's going to have this, uh, it looks like Germanic mythology has a copy of the Valsapa up. Just look at stanza 52, for example. It says, then comes, then come. Then comes Hlen's second grief. Now, somewhere else in the lore, not in the Volspa at all, you find out that Hlen is another name for Frigga, which is Odin's husband. Wait, Odin's wife. Odin's <laughs> wife, I'm sorry. Frigga is Odin's wife. So it says, then comes Hlen's second grief. Now, if you know the lore, you know that Balder died, mm. which would have been Frigga's first Mm-hmm. Grave. So her second grave would be the death of her husband. So you have to put first, Flynn is another name for Frega, which comes from a piece of lore. Then you have to know that her first grief was the son was the death of her son Balder. And then you have to figure out that her second grave would be the son of her uh, husband Odin. And you know, even in English, in a bunch of languages, we do that because we all have yes. these. These stories that we all know. We all know, you know, who the big bad wolf is. Dalmach Angelot at Tanagra. We know what that is if you're a Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> fan. We all have these little little stories and tales in our head, but the thing, the problem is we don't know the entirety of the old stories, right. and that would be the problem with the Kennings. We don't necessarily right. go the long and roundabout ways that they used to do in these, and I think part of that is because these are in a poetic Verse, yes, and, and it's trying it it, to be poetic. It it's so much easier when you're trying to be poetic to be able to grab these little pieces of lore because how do you rhyme some of these words? So you have to make right. a completely different structure, and also attest their knowledge mm-hmm. on, of the lore, and it also can pass on additional lore. Mm-hmm. 
So it's very interesting what Kenny's are. I think it is very... It's it's a different way to think. It almost steeps you in the lore while you're reading the lore. Mm-hmm. And it, it forces you to become actively engaged because you have to keep looking up what all these Kenny's mean. Yes. And it can be irritating at times, but it it's also be. good. But that's another good thing about the, the Hollander's version is he always has these footnotes. very good footnotes. Yes. Whereas some places on the web pages where you're looking up these things may not. Right. So, again, that's why I think both you and I, and I think Lauren as well, the Hollanders is the best for this sort of right. uh, research. Yeah, it's really good. I didn't start with Hollander because it's kind of hard mm-hmm. when you're new to Ostatrio or studying Norse mythology, but I think I started with the Carolyn Larrington. Yeah. Yeah. That's the author. It was, I mean, it's pretty good. She has some interesting... You can definitely see her bias in <laughs> yeah. a lot of places. But it's really easy to read if you're new to the lore and you're not very used to the And sometimes and stuff that's yet. useful. And you just need to know that when she says rape, it usually means love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her feminism comes through a, right. a lot. And, you know, everybody who writes is going to have a bias. Right. I think that Hollander has less of a bias than most of the other people. And you know, I it's hard to be that dried. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I I don't want to say just because he has a PhD in language or whatever it's in, he's like brilliant because just because you have a PhD doesn't mean you're smart. Right. Lots of idiots have PhDs. <laughs> but he does have a PhD in the field. In the field and his specialty is like Norse literature. So this is absolutely his specialty and he's coming from it academically. A lot of times you have people coming from it quote unquote religiously if they're Wiccan or even Ossetro. And a lot of times that bias really messes things up. So even though the academic bias is extremely dry, I still think Paul, uh, well, Hollander does a good he job. He has a lot of beauty after you, after you know yeah. more. And there's a lot of beauty to the way because his is very poetically written. It's I think it's. And if you read the introduction, it's a good idea because he talks about how the Kennings are actually broken up. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you're done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I was agreeing with you. All right, so I think we were talking about Abdullah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So that was that was a bit of a side tangent, but I'm glad we did it because we need to say that a lot of this stuff they just assume that you know it, and we don't. Yeah. So let's get back to where we were. Oh, actually, we were at Burr, weren't we? Yes. Right, because it seems that Abdullah Yamur and Burr were kind of all there to begin with. Now the question, did Ymir really come from Muspelheim? Or I mean, did did Ymir really come from Niflheim? Is a good question. I guess we don't know. Um, did, did, would that imply that Burr really came from Muspelheim? So you have the balance, and you've got Abdullah feeding both of them. These are just conjectures, things that we're asking. Right. But what we do know is they were all three already in existence. But, I mean, as soon as the two opposite worlds came together. 
But Abdullah is the one that really let them live because Ymir, uh like drank milk from her and she actually licked Burr out. So neither of the other two could live without Abdullah. So Abdullah is a primordial sign of Earth life. And also Earth. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on to what happens next. Um, oh, my notes aren't very good here. Let's just move on to what happened next. Uh, so, keep in mind this is a little con- a little bit confusing, but basically what happened is Ymir, now he was the giant, he sweated out a bunch of other giants from under his armpit, and his two feet begat like sons and daughters with each other. Then at the same time, Burr somehow had a son named Bori. We don't know who or if the, there was a mother. From This is from recollection, so this is not from any notes that I've read or can remember directly reading from, but for whatever reason, I thought that there was the possibility that Burr begat with one of the giants. Possibly, well, are you thinking of Bori, though? Maybe. Because what happened, Burr somehow had a son named Burry, and Burry married Bessela, who was a giantess. Okay. And they gave birth to Odin, Philly and Vey. So, um, Odin probably sounds the most familiar. So all of this is a little bit hazy. Because then what happens is Odin, Billy, and Vey get together and they decide that they're going to kill Ymir. And they do. And his blood drowns like all the giants except two, I think. And those two end up making all of the frost giants that are around today. Did we have a reason for Ymir's death? I don't recall. No, I don't think we do. This is more like... Oh, go ahead, Lauren. They dismember him and turn him into the world. <laughs> well, yes, they do. That's the next thing that happens. They talk about um, taking Ymir's body and like his bones become the mountains, his hair becomes the trees, and stuff like that. So, like, let's review what we just said right there, though. Why did... Okay, first of all, who was Burr's wife? He had to have a wife if he made... If he gave, if he had a son, Bori, right? Well, <laughs> not necessarily. Well, I guess in myth, in, with myth, it's a little bit different, isn't it? It is, since we have Loki later... Be getting some things. Uh, that's true. That's true. But there's at least a father there. It's true. <laughs> sort of. But, uh, well, and I mean, and then Ymir is interesting. What is the significance of him? Like, this first bunch maybe, of giants are sweated from his arm. Well, maybe that's a part of it. I mean, since Ymir was able to beget by sweating, mm-hmm. and without another mate, why can't Burr? Do the same do thing. Do the same, or, you know, simply right. replicate or something by himself. That's, yeah, that's true. I mean, it would make more sense in our mindset that it would be a, a mate, but, like, perhaps, like in the old Greek mythologies where 
all people were one used to be one and were split. Oh right. Now you know here's another interesting thing. Let's just say so this is conjecture, but let's just say Burr gave birth to Bori without a mother. Mm. So you've got Ymir gives birth to all these giantesses and he just sweats them out of his armpit, so they're created asexually. And you get all these giantists. Burr makes Bori, and let's say he does that asexually. So then, remember, Bori marries Bessela, who is a giantess. So you have the second generation of Ymir and Bor, which are those first two things that existing. Those two, let's just say they're opposites, because they're still in opposition today, coming together and getting married... Bessel, Burry and Bessela to create Odin, who's Odin, Billy, and Bay, who A, make the earth, and B, are, you know, Odin is the leader of the gods. I mean, is that significant? Is that the case? Well, the whole story from the very beginning is about opposites coming together. Right. So it makes sense in that light. The current leader of the gods is a synthesis of of the offspring of Ymir and and Burr. Mm-hmm. That's actually interesting. <laughs> I mean, I just think that's interesting. Now, to say that Ymir came from Niflheim and Burr came from Muspelheim, or at least each of them were aligned to those worlds, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that. Of course, this is my own personal conjecture, or it's hard to even say gnosis because I have not had a spiritual experience telling me how the world began. It's not my big concern. It's not like my main focus, but still. The only reason I wouldn't say that uh, Burr came from uh, Muspelheim is because he was in ice. And Ymir, though he makes ice giants and frost giants, he shouldn't come from the fire either, maybe? But maybe they're a different type of opposites. Yeah. Or maybe they're well only sort of opposites. Is there a destructive or creation in this? Is your mirror destructive? Is Burr creative? Well, if we look at Yamur's prodigy, mm-hmm. they are ultimately the giants who seem to be not so much destructive as they don't really want things to change so much, it doesn't yeah. seem. They so seem rather stagnant forces. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the closest thing we have to Burr's offspring would be the gods. Right. Who are more of a creative force. But honestly, if you think about it, the gods They're are not really... force. Right, because remember, the gods are truly the offspring of Ymir and Burr, and Burr both, mm-hmm. which is perhaps why they're a creative force, force rather than a destructive force. And it's it's not even like creative unstoppably, right? They understand an end. It's not chaotic creation. So it they're the gods are just the center, right? And when you think about it, the true opposites of somebody like Ymir would be Surt, right? Who's the and he definitely comes from Muspelheim. Mm-hmm. And he has all to do with fire, and he ends up burning the earth and everything else. 
So it seems like, but so is Cirque and Bore connected? I don't know. It doesn't imply that anywhere. No. But it's not impossible either. Again, either we don't have enough lore, or the lore that was there did not give enough explanation from the very beginning. Because again, yeah. this is this is our mythology. This is our lore. Mm-hmm. This uh, made sense at the time it was being told. The way right. we're trying to dissect it may not be the way that our ancestors would have. So that's right. why it may not make as much sense to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's something about mythology. I can't remember who said the quote, but it's something that never happened, but is still true. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there really a cow floating around in space? In a sense, yes. In the physical sense, like, if there were satellites up there, would they (laughs) run into space cows? No, not really. It's a way to explain how the universe came into being. And I think it's a rather accurate description. You have chaos. We have always had chaos forces, stagnation, even in the simplest something versus nothing, there's always a duality between everything, even if it is as something as, as simple as something versus nothing. I mean, obviously, we can't live in sub-zero temperatures, nor we can, can we live in, like, the center of the sun. We need something in the middle, and all life needs something in the middle. There's a range things survive in. And I think that's what's really being captured by this whole... Ginnagap and Abdullah, you know, a sign of life, um, more than they like physically exist somewhere. So, okay, before we move on, let let me just sum all this up again. So, Ginnagap and Masfalheim, or I mean, Masfalheim and Nifelheim. Ginnagap was the gap between them. Abdullah, which created life, came there. She fed Ymir, um and licked Burr out of the ice. Burr, or Ymir made all the giants, ice giants. And at the same time, Burr created Bori. Bori and Bessla got married, and they gave birth to Odinville and Bay. Then Odinville and Bay decided that they wanted to make Earth, so they killed Ymir. Any ideas on why? I, for whatever reason, I have a feeling that I've read a story. I've read way too much. Here's okay. the problem. And everything gets mixed up in my head. But for whatever reason, I, I feel there was some sort of agitation that they t- that uh, Bori and Besla got together. And Ymir was against it. For whatever reason, this is what my memory was saying. And... The children of the them together wanted, you know, Odin Valley Bay mm-hmm. um, wanted to stop this war from happening or something. This is oh, what I'm remembering. Like that does sound vaguely familiar. Some idea of a war between because Jumur was very powerful and enormous, so right. And I don't remember if it was a trick, but. I remember that they wanted to split him apart because otherwise he might come back together or something like that. And they, I don't think this is mentioned in the actual Volsipa. I, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's mentioned in the actual Volsipa. But that does sound 
familiar, like there is some war going on with the giants and everybody else. So it could have... There's some, like, line in here that just... Implies. Mention, it, it, yeah, it implies it. It says, and that was the first war of the gods. And oh. doesn't it go into any actual... Details. Deeper detail than that. That would be a really good one to study. A lot of what we're going to talk about is, like, jumping off points for more things to study. Obviously, because we've had massive conversations about things already. Right. And we may not even finish all of the boss, but today actually it's unlikely we will. Um, is that how much is left? Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, we're still good. So, let's just, unless anyone has something else to say about it, let's kind of table why they wanted to kill Yamar. The war thing sounds very familiar. Maybe they got into some sort of war over something they had to kill him. But I do remember... Those the, the three sons came together and killed him. And his blood drowned like all of the ice giants that he had created because he created a huge amount. Except for, I'm pretty sure there were two left and that's where the ice giants like of today come from. And they made his body the earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to get into what's what. I mean, the bones were his mountains. Trees were... His hair turned into trees. His brains turned into the clouds. I just kind of like that one. His blood was the sea. That's why it's salty. Not say. (laughs) There's another one I really like, too. Oh, his skull. um, Four dwarves. I thought his skull was the sky. His skull was the sky, but it was held up by four dwarves, which is Nordri, Austri, Sudri, and Vestre which is where the cardinal directions come from, northeast, south, and west. And, yeah, his skull was this guy. Oh, I know what it was. The maggots that started living in his flesh were turned into dwarves. So you imagine, basically, basically the point of all of this is they turned his body into the earth. Now, here's a question. Why did they turn Ymir's body into the earth? Somebody that could have if our earlier conjecture was correct, come from Niflheim, the world of kind of stagnation. Well, I think that's kind of interesting that the physical Earth that we actually live on is the body of something that is quote-unquote stagnant. Well, you wouldn't want it to be chaotic. And, but if it was mutable too much so, we wouldn't be able to live on it. Right. If it couldn't... Yeah, yeah. If it couldn't change at all, you're right. It We couldn't live on it. But I wonder if that's part of kind of like what the myth is saying, that the physical earth that we live on and physical matter is something that's kind of stagnant, but then you have the movement of everything else and the forces acting upon the earth as something a little more chaotic and I wonder if that's why they chose his body for the for the physical earth and maybe it's implied that the chaotic part is the forces acting upon those okay. so you, elements because you can take stagnation and make it not stagnant again 
Right. Well, I think in every system, stagnation and chaos exist in a constant state of conflict. And you want them balanced. And you want them balanced. And I think, again, this is kind of what the tale is telling, is that we need to find that balance. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But you kind of really are only seeing one half of the balance because you're seeing Ymir, you're seeing Ice Giants, you're seeing the stagnation side of it. But it seems like the parts that is lost is things like, you know, what happened, what did happen to Burry? And what was the chaotic race that was born? If a stagnant race was born, certainly a chaotic one would be born too. Oh. We only know, after this point, really what happened to the gods, the mixture of the giants and... Well, we also know about the, the giants themselves, too. Right. But we don't... We don't do, we do not know anything else about Abdullah after this point. No, no. So they could still be out there hanging out with Abdullah. They could be. I'm just wondering how we bring balance to everything. And I wonder if part of the myth that was lost, and I think it'd be interesting if... Yamur's body becomes the earth, which is kind of stagnant, but maybe like Bori's essence becomes the wind. So you've got an idea of, of matter being something solid and the energies that act upon matter being something more chaotic. I guess it's all just really conjecture and it doesn't matter that much. I think you need to meditate upon it. <laughs> yeah, I've actually never done serious meditation about the whole beginning of the world thing. I think it'd be more fun. One I, of those things. I think it, it is something that I should do. Mostly I focus on, you know, a particular god or yeah. a particular question that I have. But, yeah, this one hasn't come up. There you go. It, it is something interesting to think about. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it does get back into that whole stagnation, chaos thing. Which, yeah, really seems to be something that's uh, one of the central elements to this whole beginning of the world and also the end of the world when we get into Ragnarok. You've got the chaos versus stagnation thing. Um, something else I thought was interesting when it talks about the after that happened, so after um, Ymir's body has been turned into the earth you have the gods come together and it says things like you know none of these things were named the sun, moon, morning, evening etc and it talks about how the gods come together and they start naming things and there is really an importance on giving things names I think does it give you power over them? I think it does. It gives a value. Well, it gives I think additional it gives a value. Because yeah. it actually gives it a a meaning as opposed to just something that is. Right. There's a definition yeah. behind things at that point. And, yeah, I I just think that reading the Volspa, I think it, it comes out well or it comes out more clearly. But I think that it really does kind of focus on things were there and then the gods went around and named them all. And in a sense, that was the way that the gods created things. Not so much that they created the physical things that were there, as much as they named them and 
in that way they created the names and the places for them to be and the functions that they had and everything else. And I just think the whole naming thing was was kind of interesting. Yes. Language. Okay. Okay, so this next one is actually going to be another discussion because I know Lauren doesn't agree with me on this one. I do... I don't think this is necessarily true, but I do think this is interesting. Now, this is one of the few that we're actually going to look at a couple of stanzas. So anyone following along at home, it starts with stanza eight. (laughs) Now, this is talking about the fates, who we think are probably giantesses. And we've got two questions we're going to ask. A, are these the same deities in question, which I think they are, and B, has something actually changed? Now, when you go to stanza eight, the important part, it says, um, until three came Thur's maidens, all powerful, from Jotunheim. And this is from the Codus Regius. Now, what is in it, what is interesting and important it says until three came Thurs maidens all powerful all powerful is important this is the only time it mentions three maid three maidens coming in the boss but now if we scroll on down to stanza 20 it says it starts thence came maidens much knowing three from the sea which under, and then it goes on and on, and it actually talks about the the Nornsumerg some more. But it says, Thence came maidens much knowing. Not all knowing, but much knowing. Alright, now what's interesting, in my opinion, is if you look at what happens between stanza 8 and stanza 20... That's new. I mean, it talks about, like, names of dwarves and stuff like that, but it already way before stanza 8 told us where dwarves came from. The only thing of significance that happens between those stanzas is mankind is created. And what I think it could mean, possibly, is that the world is to a large extent controlled by fate. But humanity is given free will and we're the first things to truly have free will and we are not completely controlled by fate. So the fates, in the beginning, are all powerful. But once mankind is created, they are only much knowing and no longer all powerful because we, to an extent, are controlled by fate, but we have control of our fate as well. When I saw all powerful, when you mention multiple things and then you say all powerful, I don't think of them as being all powerful. I mentioned them as being all three were powerful. I could see that. Well, there's something that I noticed that I didn't notice before. That in 20, stanza 20, they say, thence come maidens, much knowing, three from the sea. So, water obviously implies rebirth. So maybe the fates did have some type of rebirth after the humans were born. Oh, that's a good point, too. I didn't even notice that didn't part. I didn't think about that before. All right, I noticed it, but I didn't think about it before. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I didn't really want to support your point because I didn't agree with it before. But <laughs> <laughs> now, Lore's point... All of them knowing, yeah. ...is interesting. It says... 
because until three came, thirst maidens, all powerful from Yatanite doesn't mean all powerful. They are super powerful, or all of them are powerful. Now, again, this has been translated into English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now, the Old Norse is on the other side. Right, but I can't and read I that. don't know if it's like usually in English. My understanding is when you say something is all powerful, mm-hmm. uh, it sometimes is written as a full word instead of two, or there's a hyphen in between. This is my understanding of how I've read it before when something is all powerful or all is always capitalized. I don't know. I just thought it meant all powerful. Well, English is yeah, Let's see if Hollander and Oh, but it's not actually the exact same translation. Is it Volsipa or Codex? This is the actual Volsipa. And it was stanza t- which one was it? Nine? Eight. Eight. Oh, that's totally. Shouldn't be the same? Yeah. It said, Till maidens three from the Thurses came, awful in might, from Ettenholm. So what's awful in might mean? Very awfully powerful? Yeah, awfully powerful. Their power was full of all. (laughs) And then 20... Is worded very, very different. Oh, what's 20 say? Thence wise maidens three betake them under spreading boughs, their bower stands, and then it says their name. They laws did make their life to choose for the children of men, they marked their fate. That's that's one of my favorite lines. That's one of my favorite lines, too. So it doesn't even talk about them being power water. But if you read instead of the um, Snorri translation, who's the other guy who does a translation? I always forget his name. Every time Chris. No. For whatever reason, I'm seeing a C, but I don't know if that's right. Oh, it's that bishop guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there's Snorri Sturluson, and then there's. um, I don't know. Did air. (laughs) <laughs> Samen. 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 Okay, because basically what happened is Samen did a translation of the Valsa, of the Poetic Eddas, and Snorri Sturluson did a translation later. It's by some scholar conjectured that Snorri could have been influenced by Samen, but there's no actual proof that happened. It's just a possibility. But Samen's 20 is more like the Codex Regius 20, where it talks about all powerful and then um, somewhat powerful, but if all powerful doesn't mean all powerful, like you said, then that's not significant. No. So I don't know. Okay, the, the problem is it's not a very specific word. Mm-hmm. If it was a very specific mm-hmm. word from one language to another, that'd be fine. We could probably pass it on and say okay, but it's 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 a descriptor. And it is a descriptor in Old Norse when they're very much into the kinnings, like we've talked about. Right. It's very hard to decipher that without knowing exactly kind of the language itself. In, in the old language. Right. I don't know. I thought that since there's kind of 8 and 20 sounded talking about the same things but describing them differently, at least it's something to look at. If they're even the same same people they're describing. I mean, nowhere else do we see anything thrice, but... And they call them maidens as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But is it the same? Probably. Do we know? We don't. 
Well, it's true. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. That's that's I mean, true because you can make things more complicated by calling uh, rig not Heimdall. Uh, right, right. I mean, and I mean, you know, is it is it completely impossible? That's the case. No, Rig and Heimdall could be different. It would make things more confusing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's not the case. So these could be talking about three giantesses and then the fates, right? And the fates might not even be giantesses. They could just be something completely different. Yeah. And then that that does kind of complicate everything. I mean, if that was the case, the reason I don't like to say that is these these three maidens are mentioned in the Vospa and we know nothing else about them. Never again. They're never mentioned anywhere else. Is that possible? Of course it is. I like to fit everything (laughs) together because that's what we like to do. We look at things as puzzles and patterns and... We want to make everything fit together, but that doesn't mean they necessarily do fit together. Mm-hmm. So, um, what's our time look like? We have probably 10-ish minutes. Let's see. No, 6.20. Oh. <laughs> okay, the next thing that I'm going to touch on... Okay, like I said, this is probably going to take more than one time. The next thing... I'm just going to introduce this subject, and we might just brush the surface and we'll get more into it next time around. All right. This is one of my favorites and I believe it is stanza 18. This is one we'll actually look at the stanza and this is talking mm. Oh no, I don't like this stanza at all. Let me look at it from this. It's more clear in the other version. In Hollanders. This is where it's ta- yeah, this is where it's actually talking about what the gods gave us to make us human, so to speak. So it talks about who we are. It says, Since they possess not soul, they had not being nor bearing nor blooming hue. So it's talking about this. these are the things that people didn't have. And then it says, Soul gave Odin, sense gave Honor, being loather and blooming hue. So we'll go into next time what all of those mean, but I do think it's interesting. Okay, let's read that again. The first was, since they possess not. Now down here in the second half, since gave honor. Okay. Soul they had not. Okay, down here it says, soul gave oven. Okay. Um, Nor blooming hue. Oh, oh, wait. Being nor bearing. And then down here it says, being was given by loather nor blooming hue, and blooming hue is also given by loather. So it's interesting because you actually don't ever have a god giving them bearing. Well, it kind of gets interesting. Okay, so a god never gave them bearing there. Now, if you look at the Codus Regius, it says spirit... They did not possess mind inspiration. They did not have, and I don't actually, blood nor nor motive powers, nor good colors. Um, Spirit breath gave Odin. Mind inspiration gave Honor. Blood gave Loder and goodly collar. So we don't get motive powers. So in this one, we don't get motive powers. So on one, it's motive powers, and in the other, it's bearing. And we'll talk about maybe what those mean. But I... 
You know what? It says that they didn't have any of those. The gods gave them most of them, but not motive powers. So, kind of what I'm going to... Uh, you you go first, and I'll tell you what I'm going to introduce. We're not puppets. We're not we're not given directives. We direct ourselves. This is what I'm getting from it. That is exactly what I got from it too. The gods give us everything we need to become rational individuals with a will of our own. They don't give us our motive powers or our bearing. They don't give us our wills. They give us the things required to create our own wills. Which is why I think, in many senses, yes, the gods created us, but I do not think the gods gave us our souls. I think our souls, or our wills, are something that we must create because this stanza here, the gods don't give us our souls. They give us the components we need to create our own souls. And that is where we are going to start next time <laughs> because that you know that might take 20 minutes half an hour e- possibly even an entire show so we're going to pick that up next time and we're going to keep going over the Valsapod, um kind of like we did now in this discussion format and we'll pick that up well I guess it'll be next month so did you have any closing thoughts Laura? This was fun, and this is a study session that I enjoy. Yeah. Well, I my own study session is kind of lame, and I don't like any... Well, I don't hate everybody that goes there, actually. They're, they're fine people. But we never talk about what I want to talk about, so I've kind of made the podcast a new study session, and hopefully some people out there can listen to it and enjoy it. Lauren, did you have any closing thoughts? Um... Yeah, I guess I just it's the beginning of the world tale, and all beginning of the world tales are pretty interesting mm-hmm. because we don't know where we came from, and it's neat to think about it. That's true. Yeah, it's a good good tale. Okay, and my clothing, clothing, clothing thoughts. <laughs> my thoughts on this beautiful scarf. <laughs> no, my closing thoughts are just that um, I think there's more questions than answers brought up in this Valsapa in the beginning of the world tales but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to study and if everyone wants to just read stanza 18 about what the gods give us that's a great one to ponder and see what you come up with and then see what we talk about when we come back next month and if you had any great ideas, feel free to email them to me at Podcast at gmail.com. And if I get them in time, we could even read them on the show. So, with that said, I want to thank Lore and Lauren for being on the show this month. And I want to thank everybody at home for listening. And again, if you have any thoughts or comments, please give me an email at Podcast at gmail.com feel free to visit my website at www.hugenhoff.org and keep downloading the show thanks for listening Rahel Rahel <laughs>